Welcome to the Central Baptist Podcast. Today, Pastor Barton explores how the biblical narrative is the story that helps make sense of our stories. After listening, we'd appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. Your response helps others discover the life-giving truth of the gospel. Now, here's today's message. Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out my entire hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my song in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of God. This morning, I want to uh, conclude the series that we've been doing. Well, we've been doing it since January, actually. And I want to weave together today's service of Lament and Hope, weave together Palm Sunday, uh, everything come together to wrap up the series and head us now into Good Friday and into Easter. And as Phil rightly said at the beginning of the service, and you've heard throughout the whole thing, there are many reasons to lament in this world, many reasons. But surely death is one of the greatest reasons to lament. And so what I want to do today is, as we've done throughout this series, I want to look at how different stories that people believe about the nature of reality, the nature of the universe, how different stories handle the reality of death. And I want to compare and contrast those stories with what we've been calling the Judeo-Christian story and show about how it seeks to handle the reality of death. And what I want us to see and what we're going to see this morning is that the Christian, the Judeo-Christian story, it is quite unique and quite remarkable amongst all the stories of the world and how they handle this subject of death. 
Perhaps the Apostle Paul says it best when Paul says, when a Christian that we know and love dies, like our dear brother Giles this week, when a Christian dies, we grieve. We never gloss over how hard it is. We never say, don't let tears come to your eyes. We never say, oh, it's no big deal. We never candy coat it. Paul says, we grieve. Like Jesus before the tomb of Lazarus, we weep. We have agony. We lament. But then Paul goes on to say, we grieve, but we do it with hope. We do it with hope. And the hope that the Christian story offers, it's honestly, amongst the stories of the world, it is quite shocking. You can hear it, for instance, in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In this, Paul, in this chapter, Paul does something that it's honestly a little bit crazy when you first hear it or when you ponder on it. Paul really looks death in the eye and he mocks it. He, he ridicules it. He says, death, oh death. Where's your victory, death? Oh, oh death, where's your sting? <laughs> I mean, he, he is just making fun of it. He's heckling death. He's ridiculing death. He's saying, hey, death, you're, you're a loser. You've got no victory here. Hey, death, you, you've got nothing. You've got no sting at all. You're like a scorpion or a rattlesnake. You can, you can sting, you can bite, but your poison has been removed. So big deal. You've got a sting, but you've got no poison he looks death in the eye and with supreme confidence, he, he mocks it, he ridicules it, and he heckles it. That's quite the supreme confidence in the face of really what is our greatest enemy. So the question you've got to ask of the Apostle Paul is, where does he get this confidence? Is, is he just naive? I don't think he's naive. He knows what death is. Is he just talking big? This is bravado. No, I don't think that's what it is either. What I hope to show you this morning is that it is the Christian story about death that enables him to have this supreme confidence in the face of death itself. <coughs> and you can have this confidence as well. So let's take the first part of the message to talk about how people today, with the stories that they believe, handle the reality of death, and then we'll just flip it on the, on the other side, and we'll talk about how the Judeo-Christian story enables us to face the reality of death, wrap it up the whole series, okay? So let's begin by reflecting simply on how people today face the reality of death with the stories that people believe, and those stories are diverse and they are many. Of course, people have many beliefs about death and what happens after death or what does not happen after death, but probably the most common way in our culture that people face the reality of death is simply to ignore it. You don't talk about that in polite conversation. Even a few of you, you know, this morning were saying, oh, it's going to be a happy service today, huh? <laughs> You're talking about death today. But we, generally speaking, we kind of ignore it. We don't really talk about it too much, and we certainly don't want to think about our own death too much. We ignore it. Kind of reminds me of one of uh, Charlie Chaplin's uh, silent films, those really old ones before any of us here were born, I'm sure, uh, back in the 1920s. Uh, there's this film where Charlie Chaplin, the beginning of the whole era of cinema, he's a prisoner, he's shipwrecked on an island, he's alone on a beach, uh, but he's a prisoner, been put on the island, so he's got a ball and a chain attached to his leg. And the whole film is just a short film on the humorous ways that he tries to deal with this ball and chain and tries to escape from it, but he can't. 
Everything he does doesn't work. And so his final strategy is to ignore the ball and chain. And so he takes the ball and chain, he digs a hole, he puts it into the hole, he covers it over with sand, and then he walks away with his clapping his hands as if I've dealt with that problem. And then he starts to run, and of course, he hits the end of the chain, and bam, he falls flat on his face uh, down in the sand because he cannot, of course, escape the ball and the chain. Ignoring death might be a coping mechanism But of course, it's like the ball and chain. None of us can escape it. Death is the ball and chain around all of our legs. And one day, every single one of us are going to come to the end of the chain and fall flat on our faces. This ignoring, though, this is a far cry from the supreme confidence that the Apostle Paul had in the face of death. So let's think through some ways that people try to face the reality of death today. Uh, do you know the name Julian Barnes? He's famous, but maybe not too famous. He's written all kinds of books, a lot of famous awards. He's an English writer, and uh, he, he used to say he was an atheist. Now he says he's between atheism and agnosticism. He's not sure. I read one of his books where he works through the whole subject of death, how th- he thinks about it, how other people think about it. And what I loved about the book was that he's just so honest, he doesn't allow any cliches. He's going he's gonna to hit a cliche saying. Uh, he, he's going to be realistic when he faces the reality of death. So, for instance, he says, some people will say, you know what? I've lived a good life, and so we should be okay with dying. And Barnes says, that's quite the cliche. That's just silly. If you've lived well, you want your good life to continue. There's always more good things to experience. So then he'll say, well, okay, some other people say, well, if you live poorly and you have a lot of regrets, then maybe you just kind of want the whole thing to come to an end. But Barnes disagrees, and he says, what you really want, actually, is a change of circumstances. You want to experience the goodness that you didn't actually get in life. Still others, he says, would say, you should just accept death. Uh, You have to die to make room for others. Uh, Other people died before you came, made room for you. Now it's your turn in life, and eventually it's going to be your turn to die so you can make room for other people. And Barnes's comment on that is, quote, it's all a bit of sentimentalism designed to soften the blow. He says, I didn't ask to come here. Besides, I like being here. And why should I have to die so that other people can live? And even more than that, Why should I care about some great, great, great grandchild of mine whom I'm never going to meet anyways? I like being here. I'd like to continue being here. Some other people, he says, will still say that death should be a welcome relief. I mean, do you really want to live in a world so filled with pain and suffering? And again, Barnes is honest. He says, I see the point. But then he says, can I at least get half immortality? Okay, I'll take a quarter. And then, of course, others try to be heroic when facing death. That famous line from Dylan Thomas, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Powerful poetry. Incredible statement to make. It sounds very heroic, but if you reflect on it for a few moments, it's about as useful as telling an ant to rage and scream in the face of the bulldozer that's bearing down upon it. Scream all you want. Makes no difference whatsoever. This is all a far cry from Paul's supreme confidence in the face of death. 
Others will go on, Barnes says, and say, well, death is just a natural part of life. And of course, in one sense, we could say it's natural in the way that all of us are going to die. So yeah, in that sense of the word, it is natural. But in another sense, isn't it the most unnatural thing in the world? It's unnatural because we just had a service of lament about it. There's something just wrong. There's something in us that says, no, 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 this it cannot be. We, we can't stand it. I mean, other natural things we don't do that with. You're hungry, and so you got to eat food or something. That's, it's a natural thing. But this, this is, death is not natural in that sense. I don't know about you, but I remember the first time I saw a body, and then the many times since I've seen bodies since that time, and every single time I see a body, especially when it's somebody who I knew and maybe somebody I love, Everything in me just says, move, do something. Like, it's just wrong. Everything about me just screams at me, this is, this is wrong. It's just, they're gone. They're not here, and yet that's their body. And the whole thing, you're just saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. So natural in the sense that, yes, we all die. But another sense, we just feel deep in our being. It's so unnatural. So Barnes goes through this whole list to show that none of these ways are really much help in dealing with the reality of death. And then he goes on to say that if death is extinction, if we just cease to exist when we die, he says, well, I can see why you'd work hard in life. You've got to provide for yourself and for your family. But he goes on to say it's hard to see why we should really go the extra mile, why we should really try hard at things if we're just going to die and cease to exist. And what he says is you might work hard to achieve things, But when you die, some people will remember you. That's true. And they'll praise you for your character and for what you did. Maybe your children and then maybe your grandchildren will for a while. But he says it will not be too long before a day comes when only one person will be left in the world who remembers you and who visits your grave. And then that person will die. And then you will be utterly forgotten. And it will be like you never existed at all. And then just to try to bring some humor to an otherwise very depressing subject, Barnes notes that there is one more person who will visit your grave. Here's what he writes. The man driving the earth digger who scoops out your remnants when the graveyard is sold off for suburban housing. (laughs) That's pretty dark. (laughs) But in one sense, this is why I like Barnes, because it is depressing And that is precisely what Barnes is trying to get us to see. Barnes is saying, if there's no God, if we just cease to exist, if it's all just extinction at the end of the day, sure, you get to live your period of time, you get to enjoy your period of time, but when you're done, that's it. There is no hope for you. He says, you can't candy coat it. You can't use all these cliches all the time. You cannot candy coat it. This is the hard reality. This is the dark and depressing reality that you must live up to. But of course, not everybody believes the story that when you die, you just cease to exist. I'd say probably most people in our culture would say they believe that, or they'll go on to say, I do believe in an afterlife, that we go somewhere. Uh, We're not sure what it is, maybe, uh, but think of Steve Jobs, for instance. Steve Jobs, of course, the uh, inventor, one of the inventors of the personal computer, co-founder of Apple. Uh, Before his death in 2011, he was wrestling with his own mortality, and he was wrestling with this common belief that there is nothing after death And he expressed his hope that there might be something more. Here's what he wrote in his biography. He said, it's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness 
endures. He wants to believe, but again, you can see there's a, there's a glimmer of hope here, but he's unsure. I don't know. I, there is no real hope. This is, again, a far cry from the supreme confidence of the Apostle Paul when he looks death in the eye. A bit of hope may be in there, but not sure what is on the other side. So the stories that people believe, maybe first we could say you cease to exist when you die. Others would say there is an afterlife, but we're really not sure what it is. We hope it's a better place than this one, but we're not sure. But then there is probably one more story that we should consider, and it's the Eastern, most of the Eastern stories, but it has become quite popular here in the West, and that is the story of reincarnation. So death is not just the end of your life. You don't cease to exist in this story. You have another life, and then maybe another life after that, and another one. So this does provide some hope in the face of the reality of your own death, but it can also produce great fear. For who knows, are you going to come back as something better? What if you come back as something worse? What if you degenerate for a long time? I don't know what you come back as eventually. I told you a story some years ago, it probably bears repeating, that uh, in my undergrad I was taking a class on world religions, and our professor took us to a Hindu temple. And we listened to the priests of the Hindu temple talk about Hinduism for quite some time. And uh, then at the end, there was a question and answer period. And this Hindu priest, this man, he is the highest you can get on the cycles of reincarnation within Hinduism. So he's male. That's the highest you can get. Sorry, ladies. Uh, he is a priest, and he is of the Brahmin caste. So he is as high as you can get before you could eventually, if he were to die and go higher, he would break out of the wheel of reincarnation and attain nirvana. So my professor at the very end of this Q&A puts up his hand and the, my professor asks him, do you have any assurance that when you die, you will break free of the cycles of reincarnation and eventually you, and you will attain nirvana? Do you have that hope? Do you have that assurance? And the priest was honest and he said, no. I have no assurance at all. That's good honesty. He could go back down the cycles. So reincarnation in the face of death, the Hindu story or maybe some of the Buddhist versions of stories, they offer some hope in the face of death because maybe you'll become back higher and better and maybe eventually attain nirvana or whatever your version of the afterlife is. But you might have to be reborn a million more times, go through a million more lifetimes before finally you get there. Well, we could probably go on for some time here. There are many, of course, stories that people believe about what death is, what happens after death, what does not happen after death. But with those stories looked at, now let's flip to the next part and compare and contrast all what we've just said to how the Christian faces the reality of death. How the Christian faces the reality of death. And if we're going to hear the Judeo-Christian story on death, then once again, as we've done throughout this whole series, let's go back to Genesis chapters 1 to 3 and see what it has to teach us. The Judeo-Christian story about death, I think, can be seen in the two trees in the Garden of Eden. So let's recap some of this from Genesis chapter 2. We read there, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst, in the center of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we read on that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So, quite simply, there are two trees. 
The second tree is what we looked at a few weeks ago, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was the call, will you trust God to be your creator, or will you try to be independent of him and live life on your own? We looked at that a few weeks ago, and God said, if you eat of this tree, you will bring death into the world, you will surely die. But now I want to look at the first tree, which was called the tree of life, the tree of life. Now, some people would say, you know, kind of think of God as he's kind of a cosmic killjoy. He's out to ruin all of our fun and all that, so that's why we need to break away from him. But just notice right away, though, that's not the story. Where is the tree of life? Is it way off to the side somewhere where they got to travel a long way to find it and to find life? Is that where it is? Where is it? It's in the center. In other words, life is at the very center of Adam and Eve's existence. Everywhere around them is life. I mean, this is a garden. There's trees, there's rivers, there's relationship with each other. And the tree of life is in the center, all representing what kind of creator God this is, the God who gives life and the God who puts life at the center. So to eat from the tree of life would give them perpetual life in paradise. So we learn from that that human death was not a part of God's original design for his creatures. He wanted life for them. Human death only entered the world when, as we saw a few weeks ago, Adam and Eve ate from the tree and brought death. And then this is just, it's like the whole, the dam bursts and everything begins to break then. The principle of death, death itself, but everything that goes with it now enters into their existence. And we can see it now in our text today, which is at the end of chapter three. We're doing Genesis one to three. We're at the end now of that story. And here's the result of their eating. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. Sent them out. So this sending out, I want you to notice just quickly here, this is an act of mercy on the one hand and it is an act of judgment on the other hand. It's first of all an act of mercy for God to cast them from his presence because look at verse 22 and what it says. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, he's going to remove him from the garden. So sin and evil have filled the hearts of human beings, and God does not want them to eat from the tree of life and be able to live in this fallen state forever. So he banishes them from the garden, thus mercifully ensuring that they don't live in a world that is filled with lament, suffering, and death. It's an act of mercy on the one hand, but it is really an act of judgment as well. Notice it doesn't say that God kind of gently escorts them out of the garden. Look at verse 24 now. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So you see cherubim. Cherubim is the plural of cherub. Cherub's angels, right? Cherub. So there's more than one cherubim. And I don't know what you think of when you think of cherubs. Probably only one thing is in your mind, especially if you've been to all the art history museums of Europe or you've seen Valentine cards. They look just something like this, right? This chubby little boy, you know, what I don't know, the kid's like eight, got some little wings, usually wearing a diaper, maybe uh, got a tiny little bow and arrow to ping, make somebody fall in love with somebody else. Listen, my son Josh is 10. He could knock that guy, that cherub, out with just one punch. That's all it would take for my 10-year-old son to Joshua. That is not the cherubim of the Bible. 
The cherubim of the Bible are fearsome creatures, awesome creatures that human beings would flee from just to be in their presence. And what we read here is that God placed cherubim at the entrance so that no one could come into the garden along with this flaming sword. And all of this is meant to say, do not enter. The way is shut. You cannot come back into the presence of God. This is an act of judgment upon you. You have been banished from his presence. You've been cut off from the presence of your creator, cut off from life, cut off from the tree of life. You have brought death into the world. If you want to live on your own and be your own little gods, go for it. Best of luck to you. And what is life like outside of this garden? Well, we go on and we read. Genesis chapter 4. Does Genesis 4, the story of how human beings have declared independence from God, set up an even greater utopia on earth, and they have many children, and they discover all the wisdom that God had held back from them for so long, and they found their own happiness, and they became the great gods of this world? Is that Genesis chapter 4? What is life like outside of the presence of God? What is life like when human beings turn their backs on God and go their own way? The very first story of Genesis chapter 4 is Cain murdering his brother Abel. Then you have Genesis chapter 5, which is a genealogy of ancient peoples. And it's unique amongst all the genealogies of the Bible, of which there are many. Not the most exciting reading, but actually, they're pretty important. And Genesis 5 names a person, says how long they live, and then it adds, and he died. You know no other genealogy in the Bible does this? For a whole chapter, so-and-so lived so long, and he died, and he died. For whom does the bell toll? The bell tolls for everyone. And so this chapter is relentless, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. This is life outside the garden. This was not Genesis 1 and 2. This is life when we turn our backs upon our creator. Death has entered into the world. Then Genesis 6 to 9, the earth is filled with violence, Terrible violence, and you just keep reading all the way to Genesis 11. It's one story after another of suffering, of lament, of men oppressing women, of revenge, of violence, until finally it turns to Genesis 12 and hope enters the picture when God calls Abraham. This is the Christian, the Judeo-Christian story of death. It is this, three, at least these three things. First, death was not a part of God's original design for human beings Second, death came into the world through humanity's sin when we turned our backs on our creator. And third, death is the judgment that we all must face for turning our backs on our creator for sin. And just like Charlie Chaplin, none of us can escape the chain and the ball of death. None of us. We may try all kinds of ways, but we can't do it. At this point then, the Judeo-Christian story actually becomes more dark and more depressing than perhaps any other story. You can compare how you want to. But many versions of the secular story, some that we looked at, would just say at least you live and then you die and you cease to exist. At least there's a ceasing to exist part there that's not as dark and depressing. The Judeo-Christian story says, no, it does not even end there. The Judeo-Christian story not only says you cannot do anything to escape death, it says there's something worse even after death. This is where it gets in the worst part, the darkest part, that we all stand before our Creator. And if we have sinned, and we all have, we will be judged. 
and we will face what the Bible calls a second death, which is the place Jesus called hell. At this point, I'm not sure, maybe other stories are as dark as this, as hopeless as this, and as depressing as this. But the biblical story does not candy coat any of this. It gives it to you straight. It says this is what it is. Death is an enemy. It is the worst thing that has come into the world. And even worse is the second death that comes after. At this point, it is so dark. It is so depressing. But it is right here when the Judeo-Christian story is at its darkest, most depressing, when we say there's nothing we can do to escape it, that it takes a drastic turn, and here's what I'll submit to you, becomes the most hope-filled, most optimistic, most joyful story of all the stories in the world. So on the one hand, it might be the most dark and depressing, but I also submit to you it becomes the most joy-filled and most hope-filled story in all the world. How does it do this? In the Charlie Chaplin film, he comes to realize that he cannot do anything about this ball and chain. And so then the whole entire film, he realizes that he must look for help outside of himself. He can't do it. He's tried everything. He has to look outside of himself. And so the film ends with him looking up at the sky, not looking at himself anymore, looking up at the sky. Perhaps there's an airplane coming and somebody could save him. He's looking out at the ocean. Perhaps there is a boat out there. Somebody outside myself he's looking for could maybe come and save me. And that's how this little short film ends. The Judeo-Christian story says, you and I cannot do anything against our great enemy death. We are helpless. We can try all we want. We can ignore it. We can make cliches about it. We can do all these types of things, but we cannot escape this enemy. We will all fall before the sword of death. But the Judeo-Christian story then says, look outside yourself. There is one. God has sent his own son into this world, someone from outside of ourselves to come into our world in order to save us. This is where the story takes a drastic turn that God sent his son into the world to save us from death, to save us from judgment, to save us from hell. This is where it all flips, and this is where we come into Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, the crowds gathered as Jesus was coming into the city of Jerusalem, and they threw down their cloaks, they had palm branches, and they yelled a word. Do you know the word? Hosanna. They yelled, do you know what Hosanna means? It's kind of got a twofold meaning to it. On the one hand, it's a, it's a cry. It's a please save us now is the cry. Please rescue us now. But the crowds are also using it in the sense of praise and thanksgiving. And so the word came to mean, at last we are about to be saved. The time has come. We are about to be rescued. And so they're yelling, Hosanna. In other words, they've been looking outside themselves for salvation. And now what the crowds are saying is in this man, in this man Jesus who is, they're saying he is God's promised Savior, God's promised Messiah. He is the one who's come to save us. The time's finally here, is what they're yelling on Palm Sunday. And so thousands of years after Adam and Eve were in a garden, we discover that Jesus is also in a garden. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is in a garden called Gethsemane. And like Adam and Eve were surrounded by many trees, Jesus is also surrounded by many trees. 
Yet just like Adam and Eve, their, their minds were focused in on just one tree. Remember that from a few weeks ago? Their minds were focused in on one tree. Jesus' mind in his garden is also focused in on just one tree. And just like Adam and Eve were struggling over a command about this one tree, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane is struggling over a command about one tree. And that tree is, of course, the cross. God the Father had commanded Jesus to go to this world to give his life on that tree. And Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's struggling with the command about the tree. He doesn't want to go to the tree. And it's not just the physical agony that he knows he will endure from being crucified that overwhelms him. That's true on the one hand, but it's so much more than that. Because if you read your Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, it says that anyone hung upon a tree is under the curse of God, under the judgment of God. So Jesus is thinking about this tree that he will have to hang upon, and he knows that it's physically going to be terrible, but even worse... To be hung on this tree will be to come under the curse and the judgment of God. And so he is struggling with about the command to do with this one tree. But just reflect for a moment. Why would Jesus, who had perfectly obeyed God throughout his life, have to worry or be anxious about coming under the curse of God? He hasn't sinned. He doesn't deserve any judgment. Why would he be under the curse of God? That is the center of the Bible's story. Listen, he was not going to be cursed for his own sins, for he had none. He was going to the tree to fall under the curse of our sins. God the Father, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit wanted to bring humanity back to God. We've been cast out of the garden, but God in his mercy said, I will make a way to come back. I will make a way to enter again. I will make a way back to my presence. I want to bring you back. And that way was to send his son into this world. And for the son, the father said, to take the curse that is due to us upon himself. And so Jesus is in the garden, and he's struggling how different, though, from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were struggling together in a bright and sunny garden, and the command of God to them was, obey me about the tree and you will live. Jesus Christ is alone in a dark garden, and the command of God is, obey me about the tree and you will die a horrible death. Adam and Eve had every incentive to obey the command and to receive life and continuous life, but they disobeyed. Jesus Christ had every incentive to disobey, and yet he obeyed. And he said to the Father, even though I don't really want to do this, it's going to be hard. If it's your will, then not my will, but yours be done. And so he voluntarily gave his life upon the cross, and so the Apostle Peter summarizes it all in these words. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. On the cross, Jesus got what we deserve. On the cross, Jesus got what we deserve. We deserve the curse of judgment for our sins, but Jesus bears the curse for us. 
And that's why Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He rescued us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? By becoming a curse for us. We deserve to be forsaken by God, to be cast out of his presence. We already were. We deserve it forever because we've turned our backs on him. And yet Jesus takes our place and is forsaken by God as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We deserve to be struck down by the sword of justice, but Jesus walks straight into that sword for us so that we might not have to fall before its blade. And that's why Acts 13, 29 says, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. On the cross, Jesus got what we deserve. But the story doesn't end there. Because of his obedience, the father rewarded his son, Jesus. God raised him from the dead, as we're going to celebrate next Sunday. He granted him a resurrection body that is immortal, that death cannot touch. He brought him back home to his presence. He made him sit at his right hand, the place of exaltation, the highest place that you can be given. He raised him up to the highest place and promised his son that one day he would inherit everything. He would give him all things. He would give him a renewed universe, all his people. The father, he said, would, the father said to the son, you will inherit everything. What does this mean for us? Listen, just as Jesus got what we deserve, ready for this? All who belong to Jesus get to share in what he deserves. Just as Jesus got what we deserve, all who belong to Christ now get to share in what he deserves. He earned all these things, and if you belong to him, you get to share in it. That's why we're called co-heirs with him. So what does Jesus deserve? Well, listen, he deserved to be raised from the dead, and so God then promises that because Christ deserves to be raised from the dead, all who belong to him will one day be raised from the dead. Just as Jesus deserved to be given a resurrection body that is immortal, that death can never touch again, all who belong to Christ get to share in this and will all be given resurrection bodies that are immortal and death cannot touch. Jesus deserved to be brought home to the presence of the Father. And so now all who belong to him are also welcomed into the presence of the Father. And just as he deserves to inherit a renewed universe, to inherit all things, a universe in which there's no sin, no death, all who belong to him get to share in the inheritance of the Son. Jesus got what we deserve so that all who belong to him get to share in what he has earned and what he deserves. And that's why the whole Bible story then is racing to this day when Jesus returns, when he gives his people resurrection bodies, bodies that are immortal, and brings them once again to dwell with God. The whole Bible story ends in Revelation 21 and 22, and the picture is of a restored Eden and something even greater. It's like a garden city, the best of human culture, combined with the best of all of paradise. And here's this final description that we get in Revelation chapter 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. Back to Eden. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more services of lament, never again. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, they've all passed away. They're all gone. And to further emphasize this, Revelation 22, verse 14 says this, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life. The tree of life is in the new world. And may go through the gates into the city. Do you hear it then? It's saying if you belong to Jesus, if he has washed you clean of all of your sins, you'll be welcomed into this new world. And all these pictures of Eden are restored again. You get access to the tree of life. You live with your creator forever in this eternal garden city. So, bring it all together. How does the Bible story about death end? It says that on the day, on that future day after Christ's return, and after we stand there in our resurrection bodies that are immortal like his body, bodies that death can never touch again, Paul says on that day, a saying is going to come true. It's not true yet. But on that day, this saying is going to come true. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. That's when our perishable bodies put on imperishable resurrection bodies. And the mortal puts on immortality. Same thing. When we get our resurrection bodies, then on that day shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up. Victory has swallowed death down and death will never be here again. That is the Christian, Judeo-Christian story on this whole subject of death. That rescue, that saving has come from outside ourselves for something we could never do. We cannot defeat this great enemy of death. And since we have this great hope in Christ, that Christ has defeated death, restored, uh, taken away our sins, and one day will give us these resurrection bodies On that day, because there's a day coming that we will stand in these immortal bodies that death can never touch again, that's why, to bring it all back around, that's why any Christian can look death in the eye and like the Apostle Paul, we can grieve because people have been lost to us. Tears can be in our eyes, but we can look death straight in the eye with tears in our eyes and we can heckle death, we can mock death, we can ridicule death, and we can say, oh, death, Where's your victory, death? Death, where's your sting? You got nothing. You got nothing. Jesus Christ has conquered you, and one day he will give us resurrection bodies, and you will be no more. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this great hope that we have in the face of our greatest enemy, Thank you that you have done it all. We have done nothing to defeat our enemy. You have done everything. Thank you, Jesus, that you voluntarily took upon the curse for us, that you obeyed the command and went to the tree. We give you praise and we give you thanks that you would do this on our behalf. And maybe right now, as you've listened to this, you say you, you, you recognize your need to have your sins forgiven. You want to have this hope. Come before Jesus even right now in your heart and just say to him, Jesus, save me. I don't look to myself. I cannot save myself. Forgive my sins. Save me from death. 
Give me this future resurrection body. Rescue me from this great enemy of death. Ask him to do that in your own heart right now. And the scriptures promise that anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, the Lord, will be saved. So Jesus, we give you praise. You are our Savior. Thank you for bearing our sins in your body on the tree. It's in your name that we pray it. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.